Ah, that's better. I can see you guys. Um, I'm sorry it's so dark in here. My desk lamp that was broken the last time I spoke with you is still broken. So I'm kind of sitting here in the shadows, so uh, please excuse the poor lighting. You all, on the other hand, are brightly illuminated, so... Today I uh, watched a quite entertaining video on YouTube featuring uh, a a YouTube presenter I'm very familiar with, uh, Dr. Justin Sledge, uh, who hosts the YouTube channel Esoterica. Uh, He is a tremendous scholar and quite fascinating to listen to. And... uh, uh, also a an observant Jew and married to a woman who is a rabbi and quite celebrated in her circle. And uh, there were there was a, a woman who was like the moderator and also the author, a uh, young man uh, whose name, of course, escapes me, uh, who has written a novel entitled The Golem of Brooklyn. And uh, they discussed this this uh, book. Uh, he shared some passages. Uh, it sounds, uh, among other things, it's very, very funny, which is welcome in this day and age. But he also they also discussed the uh, whole notion of the golem, which I think probably some of you are familiar with. Um, uh, the the tradition of the golem goes way back. Uh, in, I don't know if anybody knows precisely where its roots are, but it can be traces found and stories found in the Talmud and other places. But uh, basically, um, a uh, a righteous man, and I think it's supposed to be a man. I'm not entirely clear on all the details. Uh, a preferably a rabbi can, uh, by following certain formulae, create a um, uh, usually an enormous figure out of mud. And they're they're supposedly like eight or nine feet tall and several feet across. And uh, uh, by using certain um, uh, utterances and also written um, prayers and whatnot uh, using the voice this this uh, this figure can be animated and the golem is only supposed to be uh, created when there is a uh, a dire threat to the Jewish people And um, basically, the uh, the creature is unleashed upon whatever that threat is. And once the threat has passed, the uh, the rabbi is obligated to uh, uh, uncreate the golem. Um, Apparently, on the golem's forehead, there are three Hebrew characters, and the rabbi is is enjoined to uh, uh, erase the character Aleph, which is one of the three, and and doing this uncreates the golem. And uh, some of the discussion centered around uh, how most of us, and I have to say myself included, if we could create such a creature, we might find ourselves reluctant to uncreate it and might just want to keep it around for safety's sake, put it in the closet or something and call it out whenever we felt like it. And I thought 
uh, many times in my youth, particularly in middle school. <laughs> I would have been very happy to have a golem and point it at various enemies and say, go get him, and that would be the end of them. Uh, and then I was also reflecting that the that we actually do create golems and we don't uncreate them. And at the moment we have uh, our, our, our earth is under threat from one, one of these golems, which could be seen to be uh, atomic weapons, nuclear weapons. This is in fact a golem that has been raised up uh, a given life uh, unleashed basically and then kept in the closet as a uh, a living and potent threat that can be held over enemies uh, whenever it suits us and so we have in so doing failed to demonstrate our righteousness uh, our attempts to uncreate that golem have not been successful. And uh, there are always some people who are, who are trying to remind us that this is something we really should do. It is a threat hanging over our, not just our planet, but our species. Uh, but at the moment, the threat is still present. And this, this golem is also visible in other forms. Um, for instance, uh, firearms could be seen in that light. Standing armies could be seen in that light. So this, this ancient uh, uh, Jewish story has, has uh, great relevance for our current life as well. And... Um, The question comes up, how, how and if we will find our own righteousness such that we will uncreate the golems that we have created, uh, which um, we are ordered to do, and which, which righteous persons uh, would do, except in the face of a terrible current threat. So we may say last October, if only there could have been such a golem ready to oppose the invading forces that did such damage in Israel and on and on it goes. So this has been on my mind since this topic came up. But if we would like a little um, comic relief, you might look at that novel and, and uh, um, apparently the the protagonist in this uh, novel, The Golem of Brooklyn, uh, is a, a Jewish man but not observant particularly and uh, uh, somehow he um, he's very, very high on cannabis one day and he somehow uses his iPad to create a golem. And having done so, the golem immediately starts yelling at him in Yiddish. But unfortunately, our friend does not speak Yiddish. And the golem runs around wrecking his apartment. And uh, finally, the... Uh, the guy gets an idea of get going and getting one of his neighbors who does speak Yiddish. And he, he drags her up to the apartment and says, what is he saying? And it turns out the golem is saying, where is the crisis? I need a crisis. Uh, and uh, the uh, Yiddish-speaking neighbor finally is able to calm him down, and then other adventures ensue. But um, uh, um, you might find this very entertaining, and I will myself uh, plan to read it and uh, I could use a little comic relief at this point I don't know about the rest of you so that's my lead in to our our 
life of practice. And of course, if there's one thing that our life of practice discloses, it's that our, our, uh, the, the vitality of our faith traditions on this earth, uh, they are, they are rivers that spill into each other. In the human heart, all of these streams merge. And this is something I know I have said before, and it's, um, well, I'm not going to call it a truth, but um, something I imagine, I believe, I experience. And um, allows me to feel the member of an enormous, a worldwide faith community such that uh, whatever group of people of faith I'm with, I feel at home. And I attribute this completely to Buddhist practice. Or, I don't know, maybe it's just practice. And I've also found in, in my life that uh, sometimes this... Um, sense I have actually makes some other people uncomfortable and they would like me to be a Buddhist and kind of stay over there and don't get too cozy with them which is like well I find that very unfortunate but in those circumstances I try not to scare people and I'll try and stay in my corner as much as possible but it's also true that I sometimes meet others Christians, Jews, Muslims, uh, practitioners of, uh, I don't know, Santeria, uh, uh, who recognize me immediately and whom I recognize immediately, and who also sense that they are afloat in this stream of uh, extraordinary spiritual faith and capacity that is part of our human person and has almost nothing to do with the various labels. And this is a tremendously encouraging experience and I think accessible to anyone as long as we don't get too hung up and start arguing about theology with each other. Theology, of course, is, um, somebody described it to me as, uh, let me say, uh, I think he said, uh, this is a Latin expression, so yes, this was a Christian monastic I was speaking with, who said it is uh, fides quaerens intellectum, or faith inquiring of the intellect. So it's interesting that the, the, then faith comes first. So ideally then, uh, faith or spirituality and the uh, intellectual edifice that tends to spring up, they will, they will be in uh, constant dynamic interrelationship. But when theology is used to um, you know, encapsulate faith or spiritual capacity, it just does not work. And it winds up being you know, imprisoning to people. And then our spiritual life can become uh, a matter of constantly uh, renewed allegiance, which is um, uh, exhausting and confusing, not helpful and not necessary. 
I suppose that's uh, easy for me to say, but that is how things look to me now. So what does that have to do with us here today, tonight? I was thinking that of Suzuki Roshi's uh, uh, fondness for describing the heart of our practice as something like uh, what he called the spirit of repetition. And This is uh, uh, something, maybe it makes sense on the face of it, or maybe it doesn't, but it needs to be experienced uh, if one is actually to trust it. And it is perhaps most potently experienced in either monastic settings or versions thereof. For instance, the... um, the retreat you guys are going to have your your end of year rohatsu retreat or the uh the women's retreat coming up in january uh, uh, this is an uh, excellent opportunity to set aside basically everything else but uh whatever the next thing is and entering completely into the round of activities and in fact n- narrowing our our focus which may sometimes depending on our particular way of life uh, we may be accustomed to looking you know days or weeks ahead and making various plans whereas in retreat all of that can be completely set aside and uh, when I was st- still in my teens and trying to learn about practice, uh, very early on I heard the the advice, just do the next thing, whatever it is. Don't worry about the, the day or what's going to happen this afternoon or um, uh, if I feel this terrible today and it's only the second day of retreat, Am I even going to be still alive on the fifth day, et cetera, et cetera? All of that can just be set aside. And uh, one can devote oneself completely to what's the next thing? Next period of sazen, the next breath, the next time my body says, okay, you need to adjust your posture a bit. The next meal, the next break, and so on. So whatever's right in front of us, and this turns out to feel like a tremendous luxury, especially if our our life is is a busy one and we're constantly having to juggle various things and keep all sorts of stuff in mind. All of that, you can just clear the decks and uh, devote yourself to what's right in front of you. And of course, it doesn't have to be in retreat. It can be... Uh, uh, Anytime the sangha gets together or anytime uh, you have that space and that capacity in your daily life to clear the decks and just sit and have a cup of tea or uh, recently I uh, took up again a, a practice from my distant youth, which was, this is a little embarrassing, pipe smoking. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's it's wonderful to go into the backyard and puff away on my pipe, and it's so relaxing to again just allow everything else to be put aside and sit there in the garden and and just enjoy puffing on the pipe. And there are many such opportunities during a day that one can have. Uh, uh, if one is willing to trust that whatever the next thing is is most important, whatever the next thing is can completely absorb my energies and my my concentration and my enjoyment. So this this is where the spirit of repetition can come from. Uh, 
Otherwise, it can be a terrible drag. You know, if we lose that spirit of repetition, then practice right away becomes really difficult, especially in retreat. So it's just something to to keep in mind. Another um, feature of our lives that I've recently been contemplating is the self, so-called, is not a container. Do you know what I mean? I think maybe we have some tendency to consider it perhaps mostly unconsciously, that the self is a container and it contains us. But lately it's been looking to me like, no, the self is not a container. The self is is pure process. It's not a box full of whatever I am. And I think our our practice of zazen enabled us to experience the self as not a container as certainly not walled off from everything else. Quite the contrary. But a process in some sense unique, each self-process is unique, but also afloat in the energy that is that buoys up all life. So as we know from Buddha's teaching, it is, this is one way to put it, it is our um, skewed knowledge about the self that is the root of suffering. is our skewed knowledge that the self is an isolated entity. There is myself, and over against myself is everything else in the universe and everyone in it. This constitutes a very deeply rooted misapprehension. And because of that, it it becomes the soil for the springing up of greed, hatred, and confusion over and over again. And the, the energy of states of mind, and particularly states of the will rooted in that misknowledge will keep the wheel of greed, hate, and confusion turning. And Buddha says, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. Therefore, practice is aimed at the root of that misknowledge, which is misunderstanding the nature of what we actually are, how we actually are. So you could say uh, the practice of zazen, the practice of just sitting, 
is the practice of opening ourselves to how this person actually is. And at least in our tradition, we are encouraged just to sit and watch. And the accumulation of new knowledge about the self eventually shifts the karmic burden of our life little by little in such a way that uh, we could say liberation becomes possible. Somebody started a little discussion on one of the uh, uh, email listservs, the one for the Soto Zen Buddhist Association. They wanted to know the uh, source of uh, a line from our one of our liturgies, the um, the ordination liturgy for for Jukai that is receiving the precepts, or also what the Japanese call Shuke Tokudo, which is our home lever ordination or priest ordination. Um, and the line is uh, something like, um, uh, I think the translation that, that may be still used is, is used is, uh, in faith that we are Buddha, we enter Buddha's way. You've, you've probably all heard that. Um, we actually don't use that here exactly. Uh, we say in the realization that we are Buddha, we enter Buddha's way. So this is not to criticize faith But as Dogen says over and over again, although uh, each of us is an expression of Buddha nature, it must be practiced in order to manifest. And it must be realized in order to be attained. So, insofar as Dogen uses the term faith, that's what he means. And uh, as I am quite sure I have said many times before, for me, what it amounts to is trust. Trust in Buddha's teaching, trust in what we have learned from our teachers, and trust in what we learn day by day. As Dogen also says, advancing in practice is an everyday affair. Rather than looking for the occasion of the great leap, make it an everyday affair, everyday business. So I I don't know if some of you, maybe all of you, have a practice of daily Zazen, or maybe some similar practice that you have adopted. Maybe some of you chant. Maybe some of you chant Buddha's name. There are many, many options. But my favorite, no surprise, is sitting in stillness and alertly and yet gently watching the upwelling of life. Upwelling and passing away, moment by moment. That's where the next thing might just be the next breath. 
Nothing more complex than that. This is a tremendously nourishing practice, soothing the spirit, easing the heart. And maybe helping us to find our righteousness so that we can participate in reaching up and erasing the Aleph character from the forehead of the golem. Letting, letting it return to mud. As among other things, one, one step in the salvation of all sentient beings. Uh, maybe it would be really good to start with this planet at least before things get too desperate. I'm, I'm sure uh, Susan Moon will have some very interesting things to say about being spectators to a, a desperate and bloody conflict far away and yet doesn't feel so far from our own hearts. There, there used to be, maybe there still is, a little calligraphy on the wall in the dining room at Green Gulch Farm someone has put up a little Zen quote that says, drinking tea, drinking a cup of tea, I stop the war. Now that is probably a good place to start. And doing that over and over and over again uh, is a practice that springs from, is supported by, and in turn supports our practice of zazen, as we like to say, on the cushion. Cushion is really everywhere, which we will come to realize. So let's find some way to put the golem back into the soil from which he sprang. And then, of course, it's a perfectly legitimate question. Well, what about when the next crisis is right here? right in front of us. Well, I don't know. Maybe there'll be a moment when we are the golem. And somehow... It falls to us to put up a hand and say, stop, no further. I think most of us will be spared that. But who can say? So in the face of complex, dangerous, and still achingly beautiful world,
to respond to what's going on by manifesting this spirit of repetition might just be helpful. Of course, the most helpful thing is when all of us are completely enlightened. Any day now, I predict. Meanwhile, I find it very helpful. Last thing I I do before sleep is I recite the Bodhisattva vow again. Buddha's way is, we say, unsurpassable, but I don't know, unexcelled, something like that. And we vow to become it. Eventually, to embody Buddha's way so completely that there's simply no distinction between us and the Buddha way. So that part of the initiation ceremony again, is something like invoking the presence and compassion of our ancestors in the realization that we are Buddha's, we enter Buddha's way. Maybe that's enough from me for right now. Perhaps there's some comments or questions. I'll do something with my screen here. Jim, did I see? Oh, yes. Go ahead. Whoever you Sorry, are. this is Barry. Hi, Barry. <laughs> Great talk as usual. Thank you. Um, when you mentioned the self is not a container, it made me think of something I read maybe a week or two ago that really struck me. I was reading this um, book called Being You, or actually maybe it was an interview with him, but the um, the um, author's Anil Seth. He's a neuroscientist. Yes, I've seen and, that name. Uh, yeah, his stuff's really good. You know, it's very Yogacara, but... Um, mm-hmm. He said something that really struck me, and it stayed, you know, kind of is one of those things that just kind of almost like stopped me in my track. And he said, um, the self isn't, wait, I'm going to mess this up. He says, the self isn't what perceives things. The self itself is just yet another perception. Mm-hmm. And that really, I thought it was such a powerful statement. Mm-hmm. You're up. Uh, Comment made me think of that. Thank you. It's interesting when someone comes from a, a disciplined scientific perspective and echoes some of Buddha's insights. It's quite fascinating when that happens. Oh, hi, Mio. It's Jim. Hi, Jim. Um, well, you, at the beginning of your talk, you were, you were talking about, uh, you know, your resonance with uh, people of faith, regardless of what faith tradition they might come from. And I had a similar experience recently. I My nephew, who, who has found um, um, solace and, um, and a soberness, in uh, joining of an evangelical church, and um, it's uh, I, f- I was at a wedding where he was there, and I just felt myself so drawn to him, uh, and he's been through very difficult life, I would say, uh, in a way. Uh, but now that he is uh, 
a person of faith, um, I felt uh, this is my brother. <laughs> I really mm-hmm. felt so much that that this is my brother. This is like the most interesting person in this whole room, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to I want to uh, be with him. And uh, actually, I wanted to dance with him, and mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I just I just thought, oh, this is my brother. I I I you know he's he he has you know this orientation and i don't you know i don't know too much about it but still i i felt like yeah this this is who i want to this is who i want to hang out with uh but do you do you, do you feel like he can meet you there um i felt like there was a meeting mm-hmm. I, yeah i felt like there was a meeting i Excellent. i um yeah, I really did. I felt like there was a meeting, and I I wanted there to be a meeting. Yeah. And I think I communicated that, you know, in certain way that I really, I really respected him, and I really, um, uh, just wanted to be with him and mm-hmm. talk to him, and and I think he responded to that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Excellent. Um, you know, it just, but it was so, it was so, um, it wasn't like forced or just because, because or something. It was just, right. you know, coming up like that. That's, that's the good news. Thank you for that. <laughs> no, thank you for pointing that out. Hello, Reverend Mio. It's Larry. Hi, Maestro. Hi there. Uh, you know, I come from uh, a a, um, a background <clears throat> of of atheism, and so I, I'm I'm you know very little uh, involvement with religion at all. Don't know much about it. Faith in what? Mm-hmm. Faith in what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, again, for me, it's trust in the Buddha way. That's one easy formula that makes sense to me. Faith as uh, belief or allegiance does not attract me at all. But faith as trust, that speaks to my heart. And that trust is, well, rewarded isn't quite the right word, but... Uh, uh, replenished and nourished and buoyed up from, you might say, Buddha's side. Yeah. Well, I'm with you there. I'm with you in the in the trust in Buddha way, and the verification in my daily life of the truth of the Buddha way. Excellent. But yeah. But uh, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Thank you so much. Sure. Could you elaborate more on what for you is the difference between trust and faith? Because I'm unable to understand what, mm. you're, how you're differentiating those two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, I was growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, faith mostly consisted in uh, believing in a set of prescribed attitudes, truths, and whatnot. So that was faith. So if you have faith, you uh, uh, you manifest that when you recite, for instance, the, the Apostles' Creed, which is, we believe this, 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 and this. That is our faith. And then that becomes a matter of what do you believe what group do you belong to? And uh, that I began to find stifling. So trust is different if one trusts what maybe one hears about the life of the spirit, um, maybe uh, what one hears about the teachings of Jesus, uh, and to to trust that 
means to proceed in one's life with that as nourishment and guidance and finding that to be genuine. So, so that's what I mean by trust. And it is not a matter of, of just believing this, this, and this or belonging to such and such a group. And unfortunately, there is some tendency from the uh, so-called the Abrahamic religions. It's very easy to sort of mo- find oneself moving in that direction. Namely, I believe this, I'm with this group, and everybody else is misguided. And uh, that I do not find to be helpful. And in fact, I find it to be dangerous. So I don't know if that's helpful, but for me, replacing the word faith with trust, I found to be instructive. Yeah, I, um, so I grew up in the Jewish religion mm-hmm. and, uh, but not in a, uh, you know, in the reformed tradition, which, you know, uh-huh. is fairly, you know, liberal. Uh, and also because my family culture was a very questioning culture and mm-hmm. a lot of curiosity and so forth was encouraged. Um, I don't have that same reaction to the idea of faith. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's um, it's just maybe a matter of semantics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of people have had that same experience where, you know, faith becomes something that's, um, this is what you have to do. Yeah. And that's unfortunate, but... It's equated with belief, basically, in, in some religious circumstances. And um, then you wind up with situations like, uh, I can't remember which evangelical church it was that would send people to funerals of gay men who died of AIDS and holding up these hateful posters and stuff. You wind up with that kind of thing. Right. And that that's just disastrous for everybody. Absolutely. Dora Lee, do you? Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, f- for me, the the word faith has an important meaning, and especially because I don't think it means blind faith. Right. That that. It's always about practice verification for mm-hmm. me that that it's the practice experience itself which, in a sense, verifies yes. the Dharma because it becomes real in your own life. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, you can't just fall back on faith in a way mm-hmm. because each moment we're also called to let go or relinquish into faith. So at each moment, it's it's another moment of, I guess, living the faith by, mm-hmm. you know, relinquishing or, you know, yeah. yeah. But that uh, that dynamic is uh, is what uh, enables trust over and over again, because as my teacher uh, used to say more often than he does now, but he used to say a lot, practice works. <laughs> so. Right. Yes, right. So you can trust the practice because yes. that's the verification. It exactly. And, right. Yeah. right. And that is, that's the kind of faith that to me is most nourishing. Yes. Yes, thank you. Hi. Um, Hi. My name's Jane Corwoman. Hi, Jane. And I come from a Native American pathway, which is basically lost with my generation. Ah. And that's kind of why I'm coming to Zen. Um, 
And I was wondering, in your practice of faith, have you achieved Satori? Or if you haven't, uh-huh. is it possible? Um, it's uh, definitely possible. I uh, I will make no claims. Um, I I'm usually uh, inspired to say in in the response to well, have you had Satori? I usually say, I will be faith. I will be, I will be grateful to my teacher to the end of my days. So, uh, in our particular lineage of Zen, uh, we don't use that word quite so much, and. Um, if we studied uh, Dogen's teaching carefully, we see that his uh, orientation is not necessarily towards uh, Satori as acquiring some big experience, which then one puts on the calendar and says, oh, that was the day, man. I, Boy, it was really great, and now I'm awake or something. He doesn't practice that way so much. Uh, neither does he say that, uh, oh, well, we don't, we don't need to be awakened. He doesn't say that at all. He says, oh, we do. And here's how it's done. So, yeah, it's definitely possible. And um, maybe looking for some big experience, which then I can label as Satori, is not the most helpful way. But some people, that's what they want to do. So, okay, go do that. That's all right. But that may not be the most helpful way. In fact, I would say it's not. Thank you. One suggestion I might make, uh, if, if you'll allow, um, if you encounter people uh, who insist on using that kind of vocabulary and, uh, for instance, say that uh, they experienced Kensho on such and such a date and um, ever since, blah, 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 then, okay, just look carefully at their lives and their behavior and see if you see it. It's like, oh, there it is. Boy, they're clearly enlightened. Or are they just like another person who, uh, for whom practice has, um, has uh, enriched their life? And they're using this particular vocabulary to express that. And okay, that's all right. But basically, they're just like anybody else. And many of us are accustomed not to relating to our teacher as though they are just like anybody else. But in the most important sense, that's exactly what they are. Oh, I, I see a, an electronic hand in the air. Uh, Quinn, is that, that you? Hi. Yeah, I'm Quinn. Yeah, hi. hi. Nice to meet you, Reverend. Um, I resonated with a lot of what you said about um, the streams of various spiritual traditions, you know, flowing in and out of each other. Mm -hmm. And also what you said about um, the Abrahamic traditions and some of the tendencies um, that we might see there. It's been really like humbling and exciting to see what's often called like mystical traditions within broader religions. Like it's funny you mentioned Justin Sledge because mm -hmm. an adjacent YouTube channel to his talks a lot about like mysticism in Islam. Yes. And, um, and I've found a lot of the ideas there to be like very compatible with Buddhist and Taoist ideas. Um, but again, going back to like, uh, 
I guess I want to ask you about like Christianity because you were Catholic and I, my sister is Christian and I want to like have more of a, like a spiritual connection with her and a spiritual dimension to our relationship. But I just really struggle to see the, the, the mystical non-dual ingredients in what she believes. Yeah. And I'm wondering like, based on your experience, like interacting with, like interfaith stuff like that. Like, do you have any like advice or ideas about like where I can meet with my sister when she's a Christian and, and my tradition of choices, Buddhism or Zen? Well, um, I guess uh, one can hope, or I, I would hope that your, your sister, um, isn't under the influence of sometimes happens a certain type of uh, pastor who will insist that um, unless this this and this box is checked you know uh, unless um, uh, someone has um, has completely accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior in their own heart. Uh, sometimes um, people will be taught that if that box isn't checked, then that person is not on a spiritual path. And basically, they are doomed to hell unless they wise up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if that's the case, then uh, when I've encountered that... Um, I've tried to meet that with as much as, of an open heart as I can, and uh, as un, as being as undefended as I can be, and allowing myself to see that person's genuine nature, kind of, um, if you like, a flame right in front of me, and relate to them on that basis. And if they're getting, you know, um, kind of uh, hot under the collar because I'm not, I don't seem to be accepting Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, um, try to meet that as softly as possible. And and my experience is that that is, that people often come to uh, appreciate that very quickly, right on the spot, even though they don't know that's what's happening. That they will drop this militant, you got to do this and this, to uh, enjoy being met by someone else in this fashion. Uh, so that is what, that's something that I trust. And I've, I must say, uh, it was quite a while ago now, but uh, I was asked to um, speak at a uh, memorial service for a young man who died of AIDS and who I had been visiting at his home. Uh, he was being um, uh, beautifully looked after by his parents, who were both dyed-in-the-wool evangelicals. And somehow or other, they had come to the point of saying, we don't know why God would do this. We don't really understand but but uh, we trust we trust God and we love our son and we will just look after him as best we can. And they wanted me to come to the uh, memorial service and speak, uh, so I did. And there were there were some folks there who would not shake hands with me because I was not one of them. And again, I tried to meet them with as soft and accepting a heart as I could manage. And I think on some level, that's what people really appreciate. Kind of like a take the higher road, lead by example kind of thing, like a, appeal to the heart beyond the the dogma kind of thing. Without uh, even thinking about it, you know, just, just meeting them in that way and, and letting what happens happen. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I can't see the gallery quite so well, but maybe 
Is that okay? Is there is this a good stopping place? I think so, Mio. Ah, there you are. Okay. Would you like to um, lead us in the after lecture chant as a way to end our evening? Sure. Um, if if I may indulge myself and do the Japanese version, and then we can all join in together. ねがわくわこのくどくをもてあまねくいさいにおよぼちわれらとしゅじょうとみなともにぶつどうじょうせんことめいあるインテンションいくわりエクステンとエブリビーンエンプレイス with the true merit of Buddha's way, beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Afflictions are inexhaustible. I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your practice. <laughs>